Last Sunday, when we finished the sermon, Jesus was dead and He was buried in a tomb. And quite frankly, that's a pretty terrible place to end a sermon. But as terrible of a place as that is to end the sermon, imagine how terrible it was to end Friday for the disciples, for Jesus' mother, for all those who had placed their hopes and their dreams on Jesus, all those who were convinced that He was not just a great prophet, but may have been the Redeemer of Israel. And there they ended Friday with a dead body, buried in a tomb, sealed by a stone, and guarded by Roman soldiers. Imagine how dark that night was, how many people fell asleep to tears if they fell asleep at all. The Sabbath day that had to be the worst Sabbath day that they had ever lived. And then Saturday night came and went. And still all hope seemed lost and time did not seem to wipe away the crushing defeat that all of these people felt. And everything seemed absolutely hopeless. And then the sun rose on a Sunday morning on the first day of a brand new week. And that sun shone down on the most amazing and bewildering sight that any human eyes had ever seen. And that was an empty tomb. Last week I said that when we began this series on the life of Christ, it was always going to come to the cross. Jesus' life was always destined for the cross. One of the songs that we just sang mentioned that. And that's true. But Jesus' life was never just destined for the cross. Jesus' life was always and just as surely destined to leave that tomb behind. Jesus' life was always not just about being crucified for the sins of mankind, but Jesus' life and purpose was also to raise from the dead, defeating death, hell, and the grave. Having become the sin sacrifice for humanity, He would also become the conquering King and prove to be the Messiah that God had promised the Son of God. And thus today we get to begin looking at the most important day and the most important events in all of history. And that's not on the hill of Calvary, but that begins in a garden where Jesus rose from the grave. Now there's a lot of ways that we could approach the resurrection One of the things that sometimes people like to do, and I think it's important to do, is to talk about why we can believe in the resurrection. Some of the proof, the apologetic approach to the resurrection. And we may mention some of the proofs that we find that lead us to believe in the truth of the accounts of the resurrection. But that's not what I'm going to focus on this morning. I believe that at least by and large, and hopefully everyone that's here this morning, believes the Bible and believes what is said. And so we're simply going to look at the story. We're simply going to look at what the Bible teaches us about this great and this awesome day. I don't plan on getting all the way through the resurrection today. I appreciate the attention that everyone has paid the last couple Sundays. I know that the last few sermons have not been short or brief in any measure. and I'm not promising that today's is going to be, but I'm going to try and be a little bit shorter and we'll probably break up the resurrection into at least two and maybe three parts because I don't want to skip over these incredible events about the Lord's resurrection. But as we start, I do want to talk about the importance of the resurrection. 
And I think that this is something we need to focus on. We sing a great deal about the cross. We've sung multiple songs this morning about the cross. Many people immediately associate Christianity with the image of the cross. And when people think about Christianity, perhaps the first thing that a lot of people think about is the cross. And there's, uh, that's understandable. But to be honest, I don't think that the cross is the central aspect of Christian faith. It was necessary, and it was absolutely important. But the real victory comes after the cross. You see, if Jesus would have just died on the cross, even if He had been perfect and died on the cross, but He stayed buried, then He would have been an incredible man. He would have been a great man. He would have been a man worthy of maybe listening to a little bit. But He would have still been a man dead and buried in a tomb like every man that has come before and every man that has come since. But it is the resurrection that brings the ultimate import to our faith. And that is because it confirms Jesus is the Messiah. Now this is shown in multiple places. In fact, over in Acts chapter 2, we're not going to go read all of that right now, but in Acts chapter 2, when Peter is preaching that first gospel sermon to the crowds on the day of Pentecost, he goes back to the Old Testament and he speaks a great length about some of the prophecies that are found there. But his conclusion is that Jesus' resurrection is proof that Jesus is who the Old Testament foretold of coming to redeem mankind. The the Old Testament did not look forward to some king to come and redeem Israel from the yoke of Roman oppression or any other oppression. The promises were for someone that David called his Lord, even though it was supposedly going to be a descendant. It was someone who came before David, but it was also someone that God did not leave in the grave. Now David's tomb was still with them on the day of Pentecost. David's tomb is still with us to this day. Even if we don't know exactly where it is, we know that David is still dead and buried. But Jesus isn't. And because of that, Peter's grand conclusion is this Jesus whom you have crucified, who you had crucified, is alive and God has made Him both Lord and Christ. It wasn't just the crucifixion that proved this. It was the resurrection that proved this. Because Jesus is alive, it proves He is the Son of God. It proves He is the King of kings. It proves He is the one we must bow the knee to as our not only Savior, but our Lord. In Romans 1 verse 4, Paul says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Get that again. He was declared. How did God declare Jesus to be the Son of God? Ultimately and fully, it was through the resurrection from the dead. Again, if Jesus did not rise from the grave, then He is not the Messiah that God promised from Genesis 3 forwards. He may have been a great man, may have even been a powerful prophet, but He is not the one who can redeem you if Jesus didn't rise from the grave. That's why the resurrection is so important. Now, if He did rise from the grave, then that means He is God's promised one. He is the messianic king. And that means also that He is the judge of all. Paul alludes to this in Acts 17 verse 30 when speaking to the Athenians over there. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. 
Jesus' resurrection is an incredible day of hope, but it's also an incredible day of warning. You will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and there is absolutely no doubt about that, and God has promised it and sealed that promise with the empty tomb. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead proves He is the Messiah, and it proves that He will one day be our judge. But also the resurrection is important because it affirms our redemption. In Romans 6 verse 5 it says, For if we have been united with Him, that is Jesus, in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Now if you go and look at the full context of Romans 6, we see very clearly it's speaking about baptism. But we understand from what Paul says there in verse 5, if it weren't for Jesus' resurrection, this practice of baptizing people would do absolutely nothing other than get people wet. But because Jesus rose from the grave, when someone submits to His pattern and His plan and is baptized for the remission of their sins, then when they go down into that grave of water, they crucify their sins of the flesh, so to speak, and they rise out of that water to newness of life. Paul says it this way in Colossians 2 verse 12, Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. Notice there in Colossians 2.12, Paul equates what God does with us at baptism with what God did with Christ in the grave. The same power that brought Jesus from the grave, that brought Jesus' body back to life, is the, is the power that can forgive your sins. And that if you're a baptized believer, has forgiven your sins. Now if Jesus hasn't risen, then we have no hope in that power. And we have no promise of that forgiveness. But also Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the great chapter on the resurrection, which really deals ultimately with our resurrection, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment, but he begins that discussion really with the discussion about Jesus' resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 14, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, listen to this, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul says, if it's not true that Jesus has risen from the grave, then you are not forgiven of your sins. Now if Jesus has not risen from the grave, that means one of two things. That means that either eternity, that God is real... But we are not forgiven of our sins, and thus we are going to spend eternity damned, or it means that God's not real at all. Now, I want to say something here because I hear this frequently, and I understand the sentiment. It's a decent sentiment. But I hear people say sometimes that even if it weren't true, even if, if God wasn't real, even if the Bible was not the truth, I'd still rather be a Christian. Because it's the best life there is to live. And I understand the sentiment. I understand when people say, well look, if we get to the end of the road and I've lived as a Christian and it turns out I'm wrong, oh well. But if it turns out that you're wrong as an atheist, then you're going to suffer for eternity. I get the logic behind that. And I get it when people say, well it still leads to a pretty good life. But you know, that's not what the Bible says. 
the inspired Apostle Paul says, if Jesus did not rise, and if this isn't true, then we are miserable people. And we're the most to be pitied of all humanity. Why is that? Because the purpose of Christianity is not just to lead a good and decent life. The purpose of Christianity is to serve and glorify God. And if there is no God to glorify, then we're wasting our time. The purpose of Christianity is to be the redeemed people of God. And if we're not redeemed, then we're either lost forever or we're just going to die and be obliterated someday. What that attitude really shows is a, probably a stark difference between us and the first century Christians. It's one thing to live a decent life that's pretty well off and pretty much like everybody else's life and be appreciative of the fact that because we didn't go down some really dark sinful roads, we didn't die in some drunken accident, we didn't get some terrible diseases, and overall we lived a good life. You don't have to be a Christian to do those things. But to somebody who was being fed to the wild beasts in some Roman arena, to someone who was facing crucifixion themselves, to someone who watched their families ripped from their arms and persecuted and killed before their eyes, right before they faced death, I assure you they weren't thinking, well, even if it's not real, I've lived the best life there is. Their hope and their confidence was in that it was real. And they believed it so thoroughly that they were willing to die for it. They were willing to suffer it. Why? Not just because Jesus died on the cross, but because they knew He rose from the grave. And because of that, it affirmed their salvation and it gave them the hope and the promise of their resurrection. If there is no resurrection, then there is no point. But if there is a resurrection, then our entire life begins to revolve around what Jesus has done what Jesus has accomplished, and what Jesus has promised. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20, after Paul gives that hypothetical, if Christ has not been raised, he says point, point blank, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead, Paul calls that the first fruits. The first fruits was the very beginning of the harvest. And it signaled something more to come. Because Jesus rose from the grave, we're going to rise from the grave too. Paul comforted the Thessalonians with that idea in 1 Thessalonians 4. He said, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep, and that is those who have died. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And, then the, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. We've read those word, words. Uh, right after that, Paul would say, so comfort one another with these words. And you know why those words are comforting? Because they're true. We don't get up whenever one of us preaches a funeral and say these things just to make the crying family to feel a little bit better. We don't say this because it appeases the mind for a while. I hope that's not why. We say it because it's true. One day Jesus is coming back. Do you know why we can know this? Because He's alive. 
One day Jesus is bringing with Him all the saints who have already died. All those of our loved ones that have died faithful. Not only ours, but those for the past thousands of years. And they're going to come with Him. And if we're still alive at that day, we'll get to be caught up and get to go be with them. Or if we've already passed on, then we'll get to come back with them. And Paul says then at that moment that the de- that death will give up, or the grave will give up the dead and will rise to newness of life. We don't know all the details about what that means, and we don't have to. But we know this, that because Jesus rose from the grave, one day we will too. And if we're faithful, then we'll enjoy eternal life. That's why the resurrection is so important. It's not just a neat story. It is the absolute cornerstone of who we are. It's the absolute cornerstone of the gospel. We need to tell people that Jesus died for their sins. But we also need to tell people that He rose and that He's coming back again. That's a message of hope. It's a message of warning also. But it's a message that brings people to faith. At least it did in the first century. Well, as we've gone over that, now let's go ahead and talk a little bit. Let's talk about the resurrection. Now, when we talk about the resurrection, and I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on this, this is a suggested chronology. If you sit down and you read all four of the gospel accounts of the resurrection, it's somewhat difficult to piece together exactly when everything happened. There are unique details in each and every one of the accounts. Each writer uh, mentions things that are unique to their account. Sometimes they share information or they cover similar ideas. It's very possible that similar things happened multiple times and it's not always easy to tell when two writers are telling about the same thing or just something that is similar. And then the biggest difficulty comes in the fact that Mary Magdalene's in all four of the Gospels, all four of the resurrection accounts. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic Gospels, it appears that she is with all of the other women. You would get the impression that she left with the women, she arrived at the tomb with the women, she saw the angels and traveled back to the disciples with the women. But then when you read John's account in John chapter 20, John chapter 20 verses 1 through 10, which we're going to look at in a little while, or 1 through 18, she's by herself. There's no mention of the other women. Now, I'm not going to go through all of the possibilities. I just want to bring that up so that you know that there are some of these difficulties and sometimes people try and use that. But I want you to rest assured there are multiple possibilities of how we can explain this that all make perfect sense. We do need to realize that the purpose of the gospel writers at this point is not to give us a minute-by-minute news report of how things happened. They're recording the fact that Jesus was alive and Luke's going to focus on his story and John's going to focus on some events and Matthew and Mark are going to focus on some things. They're not trying to put together the full puzzle for us. They're giving us what we need. And so we don't have to have the exact chronology. In fact, I'm going to say, I don't, this is not 100% positive that this is exactly how it happened, but this is one of the best uh, ideas that I've seen. And simply put, just to look through them very quickly, one of the most likely ideas is that the women came to the tomb um, and it may have been that Mary and um, the other women all went at the same time to meet the tomb. John says it's before dark. Now Matthew or Mark say it was after the sun rose. That's pretty easy. They left before dark and they didn't ar- but when they arrived at the tomb, the sun has already risen. Or it's possible Mary made a separate trip before all of this. But I think most likely the women leave before dark 
and probably they either leave at different times planning to meet at the tomb or they all arrive at the tomb together. Now while on their way, Matthew tells us there's a great earthquake because this angel has descended from heaven and has rolled back the stone. But as this is happening, the women are wondering, how are we going to roll away the stone? And then they get there. And again, either Mary gets there before the others do, or Mary gets there with the rest of them. And they see the stone rolled away. And they see an empty tomb. What makes the most sense, I think, is at this point, John chapter 20 verse 2 says that Mary ran to Peter and to John. I think that Mary leaves the scene of the tomb before any of the women see the angels. She's distressed and distraught at the sight. In fact, what we'll see when we look at John chapter 20 is she is positive at this point that Jesus' body has been taken. Somebody has stolen the, the body of Jesus. Now, if you think that she's overreacting, I want you to imagine that you buried someone that you loved dearly a couple of days ago, and this morning you went to go visit the tomb... And it was dug up and the body was gone. How would you respond? Would you be calm and cool and collected about it? Absolutely not. And she wasn't. So I think Mary runs to the disciples. She runs and she finds Peter and John. The women at this point, whether they came and she left before them or they came after she's already come and gone... They come, they inspect the tomb, and then they see the angels. And one of the angels speaks to them. Now while this is happening, uh, Mary goes and she talks to Peter and John and she tells them that Jesus' body's been taken. And so Peter and John, they run to the empty tomb and surely Mary follows. And we're going to go over some of these. And so then it goes on from there. After that, it's much easier to figure out the chronology. But that's a basic idea of what probably happened. And so let's look at this. And I'm not saying that there's not some other possibilities, but that's how we're going to proceed. And so let's begin at Matthew chapter 28. It says, And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Now, we've kind of skipped over some stuff. But some of the Jewish leaders had gone to Pilate and said, Listen, we need you to put some guards at this tomb because this man said when he was alive that he would raise after three days. By the way, that's a really interesting thing. That's not what they had accused him of. And yet they know exactly. They had said, he said he could build, destroy the temple and build it in three days. Ironically, when the disciples couldn't quite figure out what that meant, the Jewish leaders knew exactly what he was talking about. They knew Jesus said that He was going to come back on the third day. Now they didn't believe it. They didn't want to believe it. And so they said, in case the disciples go and steal the body, we need you to put some guards there. And so Pilate does. Pilate sends some guards. It says that he sealed the stone. That means there would have been probably a seal, maybe a letter or some uh, type of seal that represented Pilate's authority. Grave robbing was a very serious offense and a big problem. And so Rome came down very heavy on grave robbing. You broke that seal without permission, you might face the death penalty. Well, this tomb is being guarded. And these soldiers probably think this is a big waste of time. They're guarding the tomb of some Galilean preacher from a bunch of disciples that are quaking and shaking in fear. But what happened Sunday morning is the last thing they expected. 
all of a sudden the earth begins to quake. And maybe they think it's just some aftershocks from the earthquake that happened Friday when the rocks, when the earth quaked and the rocks split. But this is no normal earthquake. A light shines as an angel descends from heaven and comes down and that angel rolls the stone away. And these two soldiers are so terrified, the Bible says they become like dead men. Now here's something I hadn't thought of until I was doing some reading and study in preparation for this lesson. We're never told when Jesus leaves the tomb. But why do you think the angels rolled that stone away? Do you think the angels were rolling the stone away because Jesus needed them to? I don't. We're going to see Jesus later on able to just appear inside of locked rooms. Jesus could have kicked the boulder away. He could have flicked the boulder away. He could have spoken to it to move. Or Jesus could have just gone wherever He well pleased to go. Jesus didn't need that stone rolled away. That stone was not to let Him out, but to let people in. These angels are rolling away the stone so that these women who are coming and so that the disciples who are going to come are going to be able to see the empty tomb. And while it's not the only or even the most important part, it is something that has stood through time for 2,000 years that the tomb is still empty. If the Jewish leaders ever wanted to thwart Christianity, all they had to do was go and show the body of Jesus. And they never did because they never could. Because the tomb was empty. But this angel rolls away the stone. These guards fall like dead men. And we don't know what else they witnessed beyond that. But then Luke 24 verse 2 through 8 says of the women that when they got there, and they've been wondering how they're going to do this, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Now as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but He has risen. Remember how He told you, while He was still in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered His words. So these women have been traveling. Of course, they're sad, they're depressed. They're wondering how in the world they're going to get the stone rolled away. They're going to have to send back to get some of the disciples and men if they'll come out of the room that they're shaking in fear in and come and roll this tomb away. Why are they doing this? They're wanting to anoint the body of Jesus. I don't know if they didn't realize that Nicodemus had already anointed the body in 75 pounds of uh, ointment or if they're just wanting to pay their own respects. This is one of the greatest ways in the Jewish mind that they can honor the person is preparing their body for burial. And they haven't been able to do that yet. And so these women want to pay this final and great respect to the Lord. But when they get there, the stone's already been moved. Now, what would your thought be? It'd be nice to think that as soon as we saw that stone rolled away, we thought, that's right. It's the third day and Jesus is actually alive. I don't know that that would have been my first thought. Mine probably would have been like the women or like the disciples later when they heard it. It probably would have imagined the worst case scenario. It probably would have been bewildered like theirs was. Now these women see when they go and they approach the tomb. In fact, they even says, look inside or go inside. And the stone's not just rolled away. Jesus' body's not there. They know this is the right place. They know this is the tomb, but Jesus isn't there. 
And then they see the angels. Now Matthew and Mark, or Matthew speaks of one angel. He just focuses on the angel that speaks. Luke tells us that there's two. But one of them speaks to them. And when you combine Matthew and Mark and Luke, he says to them, I know that you're seeking Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. But Luke is the one that records the poignant question, Why are you seeking the living among the dead? The angelic interactions in the Gospels, if it wasn't for the gravity of the event, would almost be humorous. You almost wonder what the angels were thinking. The angels who have seen this unfold. The angels who remember what Jesus said. By the way, the angels seem to take a very close note of what has happened and what's been said and what's going on. And they're a little bewildered. Why would you come here to look for someone who's alive? When you are looking for someone, the last place you go looking for them is in the graveyard. That's not where living people are. And they say, we know He was crucified, but He's not here. Don't you remember what He said to you? Don't you remember His words? You know, that question could be asked of us sometimes, I think. Why are you seeking the living among the dead? Why are you living the way that you live? Why do you focus on what you focus on? Why are you seeking what you seek? The sad thing is so many times people are seeking life and fulfillment in all the places that lead to nothing but death and condemnation. What's your work going to do for you? I'm not saying work's unimportant, but what's your work going to do for you for eternity? It's not going to save your soul. What are your hobbies and activities and the sports that you enjoy so much? What are they going to do for you? They're going to provide some passing pleasure and then they're not going to be worth anything in eternity. What are the pleasures and the enjoyments of life going to bring for you? Nothing. So why are you seeking to live among the dead? What we do is often, or what we often do is far more foolish than what the women were doing by seeking Jesus' body that day in a tomb that He had left. It's a question worth considering. But now let's turn our attention to Mary. In John chapter 20, let's go ahead and read the first ten verses there. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and that we believe is John, uh, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid Him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead." Then the disciples went back to their homes. So Mary, again, whatever the chronology was up to this point, whether she went and got there first, whether she got there with the women and ran before they went into the tomb and sold the angels, Mary has run back with the terrible news. 
She finds Peter and John. I don't know if she found the other disciples, but she at least finds Peter and John. And she tells them, they've taken away the body of the Lord. Who she thinks the they is, I don't know. I don't know if she knows. She just knows the body's missing. She knows the tomb is empty. And she's run away. She's distraught. She's sad. She's in despair. Now this is troubling news to Peter and John. And even though they haven't done anything yet, at this point, this is enough. And they run to the tomb to investigate it for themselves. And there's nothing that indicates that as they're running, they are running there because they think Jesus is alive. Now in... I don't know if this is just a little bit of humor, if John was just allowed to slip this in, but we know that apparently John was a faster runner than, than Peter. John gets to write the gospel, so he gets to record who wins the race. And he says that he outruns Peter, and he gets there first. But John, when he gets to the tomb, he simply stands at the entrance and he just looks in. Now here comes Peter who's been behind John in this foot race to the tomb, and Peter, like Peter, rushes in. He doesn't stop. He just goes straight into the tomb. He's going to see. Peter could make some big mistakes, and sometimes Peter acted before he thought, but you have to love his commitment. He's there to see what's happening. And in this passage, in these Words. There are actually three different Greek words that describe John looking in and what Peter saw and what John saw. And what they see there is perplexing to say the least. Now what is probably thought is that either the Jewish leaders have stolen his body or Rome has taken his body or just some grave robbers have taken his body. It was the tomb of a rich man. So it could have mistakenly been robbed by just some grave robbers. But you know what grave robbers would do? They would go in and they would grab the body and they would run. Especially with that Roman guard that was out there who by now has taken off. But when they go into the tomb, the absence of the body is the most startling thing. But then on top of that, they see the strangest sight. Those linen cloths that had been wrapped around the body of Jesus, they're just laying there. And that linen shroud that had covered Jesus' face, it's been folded and put down Right next to them. What we have here is a scene of order, not a scene of chaos. Now grave robbers don't take the time to take off the linen in the first place. And if they did, they certainly don't take the time to fold it up nice and neat so that the tomb looks tidy. So what do you make of this? We're not told what Peter thought. But we are told what John thought. We're not told the depth of his belief, but it says when John saw this, he believed. Realize John, and I think that means he believed that Jesus was alive. Is his faith complete and full at this point? No, he has some more learning. But John is a remarkable man. He had fled in the garden, but he was the one that was there at the foot of the cross. He's the first one that seems to put the pieces together and even though he doesn't understand all of the Scripture that should have clued him into this earlier, when he sees the empty tomb, he doesn't necessarily have to see the body of Jesus. He just sees the empty tomb and he believes. Now Peter, again, we're not told. We're, the, we're kind of left with the opinion that Peter has not come to that conclusion yet. But these disciples leave. They return to their home. 
Can you imagine, wouldn't you love to listen to the conversation that took place between Peter and John if they said a word as they left that empty tomb? But at this point, we are brought back to Mary in John's Gospel. But Mary, picking up in John 20 verse 11, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid Him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing Him to be the gardener, she said to Him, Sir, if you have carried Him away, tell me where you have laid Him, and I will take Him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. We're not told when Mary gets to the tomb. Surely Peter and John had both outrun Mary, but she has followed them as closely as she could. She gets to the tomb, but instead of running into the tomb like Peter and John had, she stays outside. And at this point, the grief and the stress is just too much for her. And she's weeping outside the tomb. We can assume that maybe she saw Peter and John go into the tomb perhaps. And I don't know if she saw that they had come out. Or I don't know if she even saw them go in and just assumed they were in there. But she's weeping and beside herself. And she looks in the tomb once again. And we'd probably do the same thing. If you went to the tomb of your loved one and it was empty, you'd probably sit there crying for a while and you'd probably take a few really good looks just to make sure that you saw what you thought you saw. But this time she sees two men. Now Mary is really beside herself. The Bible never says that Jesus appeared to her in a different form or she was kept from knowing who it was like we'll see with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. She's just so distraught she's not even going to recognize Jesus. I don't think Mary even realizes these men are angels because when the other women saw the angels they fell down in fear and that's what people always do when they see an angel. And Mary doesn't. Mary looks in and she sees these two angels And again, you kind of wonder what's going through their heads as they think, why do these people keep coming to a tomb? And they see Mary and she's crying and she's weeping. And they ask that question, why are you weeping? Think of that. The angels, why are you sad? They know the truth. Unfortunately, she doesn't. Well, she tells them. She answers back and she's not in fear again. Maybe she thinks it's Peter and John. Maybe she thinks, I don't know who she thinks they are. But she tells them, she says, they've taken away the Lord. They've taken His body and I do not know where. This is the broken heart of a disciple who truly loves the Master. Notice she says, my Lord, even in death. I don't know what all Mary believed. But the fact that Jesus had died had not negated the fact that He was her Lord. And she felt she still had some responsibility. But she couldn't fulfill it. And she's beside herself. We're told at that point she turns around. I don't know why she turned around. Maybe she heard Jesus approaching. 
I like the idea of one commentator. This is speculation, so take it for what it's worth. But he envisioned maybe the angels looking over her shoulder. Or maybe even pointing behind her as they see Jesus approach. And she turns and she sees this man and it's Jesus, but she doesn't even recognize Him. The tears are blurring her vision so much that she can't even see straight. And Jesus asks the same question. He says, woman, why are you weeping? And it doesn't seem that Jesus is trying to hide Himself. This is a pretty honest question at this point. And then He also asks her, He says, whom are you seeking? Well, that's another good question, isn't it? Those are both good questions. Why are you weeping? I don't mean to make light of any suffering that someone's going through here today. But here's something that we need to cling on to. Whatever sadness, whatever despair you face in this life doesn't need to control you. Are we going to weep and cry from time to time? Absolutely. But for the Christian, there is always hope and a reason to rejoice, even in the saddest of times, because Jesus is alive. It makes no sense for Mary to be weeping. It makes no sense for us to let our sadness control us. And whom are you seeking? I was thinking about this this morning, and it dawned on me how similar this scene is actually to the very beginning of John's Gospel. When a couple of disciples are following Jesus at a distance because John has said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And Jesus turns around and He asks those disciples, What are you seeking? And they called Him Rabbi at that time, meaning they wanted to follow Him as disciples. Mary's going to say something similar except far greater in just a moment. But now He doesn't ask Mary, What are you seeking? He says, Whom are you seeking? Who are you seeking? Are you seeking God this morning? Are you seeking Christ? Or are you seeking self? Mary is bewildered. She is confused. She is distraught. But she had this going for her. She was seeking Jesus. And there He was. She doesn't know who it is. She can't see. But at this point, Jesus just says, Mary. And she's heard that voice before. She's heard her name spoken by that man before. That's her master. That's her Lord. That's now her Redeemer and her Savior. And immediately she notices, she knows it's Jesus. What a lesson is right there in the fact that Mary heard the voice of the Lord. When He called, she heard and she responded. Jesus is calling to you today also. Are you ready and willing to hear? Are you listening? She turns to Him and she says, Rabboni, which John says means teacher, but it's a far greater than just rabbi. In fact, some commentators say it was usually used in a title about God. It's not quite the confession Thomas will make but it is a confession of great respect and devotion. We don't know exactly what she did, if she clings to Him, if she, if she hugs Him, if she falls down and grabs His feet, like the women will do later when Jesus appears to the other women. We can only speculate. But Jesus, as she clings to Him in some way, says, don't cling to Me. Now I may ask, why? This is a beautiful reunion. Why can't she? 
Because there's work to be done. Jesus has a job for her. He says, you go and you tell the others. And by the way, in John's Gospel, this is the first time that he calls the disciples his brothers. He's gone from calling them his servants to his friends in the final discourse. And now he says, you go to my brothers. And that's what we are. We're the Lord's brothers and sisters by inheritance, by adoption. Because He rose from the grave. Because He has redeemed us from our sins. And He says, you go tell them I'm alive and you tell them I'm ascending to my Father and their Father. To my God and your God. What did Mary get to do? Don't take this the wrong way because I'm not saying that she went and preached a public sermon. But Mary got to share the gospel the very first time. The first person the first human being that had the privilege of sharing the good news that Jesus was no longer dead but was alive was Mary Magdalene. That's not a statement that says women should be preachers. We're not going to go off into all of that. But I do want us to see every single one of us has the opportunity, the ability, and the responsibility to share the good news in the way that we can. Jesus entrusted this woman, we don't know a lot about, with that task first. And then He's going to entrust it to the other women along with her. And she goes on her way and she finds the disciples and she tells them this wonderful news. Jesus is alive. Unfortunately, I hate to end the sermon there because there's a lot more that we need to get through And I hate to end there too because it's not quite as joyful of a note as I would like because sadly the disciples aren't going to listen yet. We're going to be told that the women's words were to them as idle tales. But don't worry. By the end of that first Resurrection Sunday, most of them will have a very different frame of mind. Most of them are going to know beyond a doubt that Jesus is alive. Well... You can tell I plan to get through a little bit more, but I'm not surprised. We'll stop the lesson there. And Lord willing, we'll pick up with some of the other resurrection appearances the next time that I speak on a Lord's Day morning. But as we draw the lesson to a close, I hope that this morning has filled you with a great deal of hope. Not because of my words, but because of the truth of the gospel message. I hope that you realize the price that Jesus paid for your soul, the terrible price that He paid on the cross, but I hope you see the victory that He promises through His resurrection. And you can share in that victory. And if you're a Christian today, don't forget it. As you go out to live your life tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and however many days God gives you, I want you to remember the resurrection. And I want you to remember that means you're going to resurrect one day. I want you to remember that means Jesus is coming back. And whatever challenges you face, whatever temptations you face, you keep your mind on the fact that Jesus is alive and He's coming back for you. So you need to be ready. But if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, then you need to obey the gospel. Because Jesus is coming back. And He is going to be your judge. And He has promised eternal life, but only for those who are faithful to Him, only those who have obeyed His gospel. And so if you're still in your sins, you need to change that today so that the hope of the resurrection can be your hope. 
You need to believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And if you believe that, then you need to repent of your sins. And if you're ready to repent of your sins, you need to confess Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And if you've done those things or are ready to do those things, then you need to be baptized. As we briefly mentioned from Romans 6, partaking in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. And if you'll do that, and when you come out of the watery, those waters, just as Jesus was risen in a spiritual sense, you will be risen to be a new creation. And the hope of heaven will be yours to cling to. There still will be work to be done, but that work will be a joyous work as you make your way towards heaven's shores. So if there's someone here today that needs to obey the gospel, if there's a Christian that would like the prayers of the church on their behalf, We stand ready and willing to assist you and invite you to come while we stand and while we sing.